Happy Sabbath. Today's call to worship is Psalm 73, 23-28, and page 539 in your pre-Bibles. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward will make me into your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made sovereign Lord my refuge and tell you all your deeds. Happy Sabbath. Um, I'll be reading the Old Testament reading, which can be found in Jeremiah 4, 5-7, through 7, or in your pew Bible, page 699. Announce in Judah, and proclaim in Jerusalem, and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise a signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer, a destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to waste your land. Your town will lie in ruins without inhabitant. I'll be reading today's New Testament readings. Uh, can be found in Colossians 3, 9 through 17, or in Hebrew Bibles 1090. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but as Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as Christ is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive, the, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of the body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs, and spirit. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I will also be reading the New Testament reading, um, which can, can be found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, or in your pew Bible, page 1131. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. I'm looking at my title, and I think it looks like the title of a 400-page book. A Reasonable Faith, Part 5, The Politics of Fear, Apocalypticism, and the Problem of Relevance. How arrogant am I? There's no way I can cover this in a sermon. So I'm just going to say I didn't mean to be arrogant or presumptive by this title, simply that I want to hit on a few things that these texts taken in a different order speak to. If we take our Jeremiah passage as apocalyptic, and if we take our First John text as the problem of relevance and also dealing with fear, and we take our Colossians as 
primarily problem of relevance, I think we're in pretty good shape. So we'll kind of look at it from a 1 John 4, Jeremiah 4, and Colossians 3 order perspective, if you can shift those around in your head. The politics of fear when it comes to a reasonable faith. This is a interesting piece and a dangerous one, which I'm afraid to talk about today. And I don't mean that just tongue-in-cheek. There's the things that have gone on in our church historically that have been surrounded by fear have caused people to lose jobs and lose careers. And it's, it's a sort of tragic thing looking back at many of these uh, events and times in our history. You see, we have a sort of cultural, religious, uh, collective idea that we can bank somehow on the truth past, but we're terrified of anything new. We believe God has somehow led, but it freaks us out to think that God might somehow lead. Are you following me so far? We're even afraid that if somehow where he led wasn't to a place that we currently understand and agree with now, we're afraid that where he led, we will somehow have to label that false and therefore discredit the leading past. Are you with me so far? So if you're driving somewhere, let's pick a place. Okay? Let's say your ultimate destination is Los Angeles and you're led as far as pick a place. Ojai, a diversion to Ojai. God takes you to Ojai. All right? You have a lunch in Ojai. You tarry in Ojai for a while. And you decide that it's a little late to get to Los Angeles, or maybe you temporarily forget that that's your ultimate goal, and you come back to Santa Clarita. Now, what do we do with that? It's not a great illustration, but I'm just trying to get you to think. If God is leading us on the road of life, what happens with our points of diversion? What happens when we think we've settled in a land and he's calling us to yet another land? Think of the journey of Abram. He's leaving Ur of the Chaldees, but he stops for a long time in one place. Ultimately, his father-in-law dies there and is buried there. And God says, time to keep going. I'm, you're not to the place where I'm going to take you yet. If our salvation history and our journey with God is indeed a journey, then why is it ridiculous to think that God has been leading, but where he's led us, he may not be leading us future? There may be a new place yet for us to go. Is this so outrageous? I want to suggest to you that it is in fact the essence of traditional Adventism. What I'm giving you is not progressive. It is the basis on which we were formed. We were formed as a movement. Now that implies to me forward momentum and direction. Our founders were worried about even formulating a church structure at all at all, because they knew the hazards. They knew that once you got to brick and mortar and once you started uh, encasing people in title and putting them in positions and giving them authority, 
They knew. They were wise enough to know that that had certain fallbacks and, and, and down, downfalls. Certain weaknesses. Ellen White spoke to these. The early church fathers were very anti-institutional and very anti-authority. They wanted to be free to move where the Spirit took the church. That's the essence of old Adventism. It's what enables us to go from eight fundamental beliefs to 13 to 19 to 27 to 28 and probably 35 by the time we're close to done. Why? Because we believe God keeps revealing God's self to us. We're not afraid, in theory, we're not afraid to listen now as well as study those who listened past. That's why we're a movement. We're a non-creedal church. If you read the preamble formed in 1980 at the General Conference session to the 27 Fundamental Beliefs book, it makes it very clear we're non-creedal. This is a consensus statement of belief. That means there's little room for variation. But as of late, we've been living in the politics of fear. It was around 1980 that Walter Ray wrote The White Lie, and the whole question of plagiarism in Ellen White reared its ugly head. People lost faith in those moments. It was not long after that Desmond Ford raised the questions about Daniel and the understanding of the 2300 days of prophecy and raised the question of what he called the so-called apotelismatic principle, the idea that prophecy might have multiple fulfillments. He was defrocked and sent away and decommissioned. I understand many of the people gathered at Glacierville View never read all 1,000 pages of his argument. I've heard him speak, and he's one of the most eloquent speakers to Bible truth I've ever speak. Not because I, I know well what his arguments were and agree with them past, but because he has memorized so much of the Scripture and speaks with such eloquence and, and power out of the Scripture to what it is that he thinks God has for, the, for us as people today. That made us afraid to talk. An era in which people were being fired for having disagreement with the church, an era in which teachers, pastors, university professors were losing their jobs, created an, a, a fear of conversation in us. And we began to be less open. In recent years, we've had various agendas thrown at us. Robert Falkenberg had two agendas. One was he wanted to reassert the sanctuary doctrine as the centerpiece of Adventist theology. I'll let you think about that in light of the Ford controversy. And then he wanted to have all denominational employees sign a loyalty oath each line of the 27, now all of a sudden not subject to review and reinterpretation and addition, but now creedal. I believe it exactly the way it's formulated. No room for deviation. 
Fortunately, it didn't happen. If you read some of the books that are being published by our publishing house, they're all about fear. Fear of other groups. Fear of what's coming at the end of time. Fear of creeping compromise. Fear that any sort of change or revision or review of what we think about a subject or the way in which we might approach Scripture somehow means that we've been invaded by demonic forces. We've compromised with evil and we've lost our way and become the apostate church of Babylon. We attacked the celebration movement. Anybody remember that? Oh, that was a big deal. Celebration was the dirtiest four-letter word in the Adventist church, and it wasn't even a four-letter word. You had given yourself to the devil if you were in a celebration environment. What was a celebration environment back then? They believed that maybe people might benefit from a garden of prayer. So they invited people forward at prayer time and laid hands on them with the elders and blessed them as they prayed. What was the celebration environment? They projected the words to hymns and to songs onto a screen at the front of the sanctuary. (sighs) Mercy. What was a celebration environment? Heaven forbid they actually brought more contemporary music, contemporary music into the church. And it divided congregations and drove people to very hard words. It occupied magazine article after magazine article. And now more recently, it's become spiritual formation. As if the text, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, wasn't even in the Scriptures. Somehow now that's the new four-letter word. The devil is going to get to you if you do what the Bible tells you to do, meditate and pray. Fast and keep silence. The classic spiritual disciplines have not been understood in their context, but have been interwoven and mixed in with Eastern forms of meditation and so forth, and therein lies the devil. This is the concern. This is the politics of fear. This is the politics of fear. If you don't think the way I think, if you don't watch out in every single thing that comes at you, the devil may be trying to ensnare you. If you aren't careful, the church of God becomes the whore of Babylon overnight. That's the politics of fear. And I reject it. I reject it. We do have an orthodoxy. And we should embrace it and be unafraid to engage it. We do have an orthodoxy that defines us as a people worldwide and that has value and purpose and beauty and symmetry and meaning and grace and can communicate with us the truth about who Jesus Christ is. But it's ridiculous to surmise that it is only in the past that God has led Because at one time, the past was the present. And at one time, the past 
that was the present was actually the future. And it is reasonable as part of your faith to believe that if God has spoken past, he can speak present. And if he can speak present, he can speak future. Now, this is not to say you need to run off and follow any old nutter who says she's some reincarnation of a prophet. I have run into many such types. It's very interesting in a career like mine how many reborn Ellen Whites I've run into in the church. Claiming prophetic power, claiming prophetic word, and it's usually a rehash of an over-reading of Sister White. Very interesting, the psychology of all of that. I'm not talking about that sort of thing. I'm talking about the prophetic word that comes to us as we move toward the kingdom of God, the essence of which is love and peace, justice and harmony, goodness and joy, the essence of which is characterized by the fruits of the Spirit and by good deeds which we do, which we've been prepared to do from the dawn of creation in Christ Jesus. That's the politics of fear. We're asleep, ladies and gentlemen. We're asleep. We live now in a climate of the politics of fear. And we don't need to buy into that. I don't believe it's what God calls us to. I believe that if you want to know what's authentic, you study the original, not the counterfeit. I believe if you want to know what's true, You put Christ at the heart of your theology and go from there. This is the politic of fear. And let's take a look at what 1 John says about that. I actually have it ready here. There is no fear in love, 1 John says. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And why do we love? We love because God in His grace and mercy has initiated love to us. It says in the passage, He first loved you. The Bible puts it this way, If God be for us, who can be against us, and yet we're so easily driven to the house of fear. We're so ready to believe that we may be headed in the wrong way, and then we become fearful about seeking the right way. We're fearful. And that keeps us from living in the kind of love that God calls us to that is part of and parcel with a reasonable faith. A fearful faith is an unhealthy and paranoid faith. It's a faith that leads to cultic ideas and practices. It's a faith that seals one off from the world rather than engaging the world in love. It's a faith that seeks constantly differentiation, not union. 
It's a faith that creates Waco. It's a faith that creates Jonestown. It's a faith that leads us to places that we could hardly call places of the faithful. All driven by fear. Apocalypticism. Jeremiah was our passage on this. Of course, much of Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, parts of Matthew deal with apocalypticism. But listen to how awful this sounds. Announce to Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, sound the trumpet, blow the shofar, cry aloud and say, gather together and let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion, flee for safety without delay, for I'm bringing disaster from the north. Jeremiah prophesies, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He's left his place to lay waste to your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitants. We read these and we think about the consequences of what's written and we shudder. We read what God has said will be in the last days, and we wonder if we might survive. We immediately start running to places of fear instead of places of faith. We run to places of self-preservation rather than places of promise. But apocalypticism sells. Fear sells. Find me a successful evangelism campaign in this denomination that doesn't feature a beast somewhere. Why? Yeah, they're symbols, but are they living symbols of what we experience today? Do we have a connection that's living to these symbols? Is there another way? Is fear the only reason people might turn to the living God? Apocalypticism can be dangerous, not because it isn't true, but because it has its roots in fear. Apocalypticism can be helpful because it shows us what Christ is going to do in times coming to bring about our redemption and our salvation. But enough of that. We get now to the problem of relevance. How do we have a faith, a reasonable faith, a reasoned faith, and how does that relate to relevance? Well, I'll tell you what. It should be obvious, but a reasoned and reasonable faith is always more relevant than an irrational one. It may not be as attractive. It may not capture people caught in the emotion of a moment or the hysteria of a time but it's always more relevant. For relevance, we come not to all the things that we should fear, but we come to that which we should embrace. And this is where our passage in Colossians is most helpful. You have taken off your old self with its sinful practices and have put on the new self in Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So transformational living in Christ is what Colossians is saying we need to be about. 
something that renews us and moves us ever more toward the image of the one who created us in his image in the first place. It's a restoration process moving us from the degradation of sin to the restoration of the divine image. Here, verse 11, there is no Gentile or Jew, and I referenced this text last week, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, barbarian, excuse me, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Verse 12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. That's hard sometimes. And forgive one another. That's hard too sometimes. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds all these other virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, together in perfect unity. Here in Colossians, we have a recap of 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And as members of one body who have been called to peace, be thankful. You realize how transformational thankfulness is? All kinds of studies show of the power of thanksgiving for quality of life, for joy, for health, for healing, for enjoyment. Being thankful is a profoundly beneficial thing. It's part of a rational faith. It's part of a reasonable faith. A reasonable faith lifts up thankfulness. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you recite psalms and sing hymns, and hum a tune straight from your heart. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. There's that word thankfulness again. Now I realize nowhere does it say, and this is a reasonable or this is a rational faith. Paul wasn't writing my sermon. He was writing his, his letter. But I want to tell you that psychologically, sociologically, anthropologically, anthropologically, historically, the evidence is overwhelming that this is true. Most basic things that we try to teach children, even Pathfinders, part of the pledge, keep a song in my heart, it says, comes back to this. When we sing, we heal ourselves and we heal the world. That's a crazy thing to say, you say to me, especially since I can't sing. Oh, no, you can sing. Your heart sings. Your voice can raise itself in joy. My mother, I thought for years, was a bit nuts because she talked to her plants constantly. 
They're beautiful. And they grow, sometimes despite a little bit of neglect. It's amazing to see things flourish with her love. It's amazing to see how nature responds to human love. When we sing, we change things. It's why God asks us to do it and why he's placed that capacity within us and why it's so much a part of our church service. When you lift your voice in song, in psalm, in hymnody, in songs through the Spirit of God, singing with gratitude in your heart, it becomes something that makes your faith the most reasonable of all. And finally, out of this gratitude and out of this Christ-centeredness and out of living through His teachings, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Christ. Giving thanks to God, there's that word again, thankfulness to God the Father through Him. Well, Paul may not have written my sermon, but I can never write a better one than he just gave. And so with that, I'm going to close. A reasonable faith is one in which we have a Christ-centeredness, an openness of community around that, one in which the values of peace and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and love and justice are embodied. A reasonable faith is a thankful faith, giving constantly thanks to Christ, thanks to God in Christ, singing with a heart full of thanksgiving, singing songs as we're led to by the Spirit, singing songs and hymns together, whistling a tune, going about our work, keeping ourselves centered in the joy and the love and the peace and the hope and the harmony and the grace that is the presence of God. I hope that you as a congregation, that we as a people, that we as friends will not succumb to politics of fear that we won't be bullied, that we'll keep true to the conviction that God leads past, present, and future, that we'll listen with open ear and open heart, and that we'll let go of the paranoia that paralyzes and embrace the presence of the living God who by His Spirit, His breath, His energy of life, renews us all daily. As the word of our hymn says, With Thee, O Master, let us live in peace, in joy, and in service. Amen.